1: Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am John Yargo, your host. Vanessa I. Corradera's book, Reanimating Shakespeare's Othello in Post-Racial America, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2022, looks at how that 17th century play, its protagonist, and its other characters were reimagined in theater, television, and other media between 2008 and 2016. Corridera's analysis ranges from the sketch comedy Key and Peele to Keith Hamilton Cobb's play American More, from ever-persistent traditions of minstrel Othellos to the reimagining of Shakespeare's play by writers of color. Bringing together examples of cultural texts that perpetuated anti-Black racism and other artifacts that offer anti-racist possibilities, Corridera's book helps us to understand this recent moment in U.S. history and the continuing impact of Shakespeare's play. At times, to quote reanimating Shakespeare's Othello in post-racial America, creators like Serial's Sarah Koenig, quote, have operationalized what this book demonstrates is in fact the common Othello narrative without truly thinking about that narrative's force, wielding Shakespearean authority without any regard as to this potentially subjugating purpose for which she is employing it." End quote. At other times, these reanimations invite us to shift our perspective and by extension, reconsider our identifications with characters such as Desdemona or Iago, or in fact, Reconsider our disidentifications with characters like Othello. Vanessa Corridera is department chair and professor of English at Andrews University. Vanessa's scholarship has appeared in Literature Compass, Borrowers and Lenders, Shakespeare Quarterly, and the Routledge Handbook to Shakespeare and Cultural Appropriation. Vanessa also just published Shakespeare and Cultural Appropriation, which is co edited with. Jeffrey Way, and L. Monique Pittman from Rutledge. In addition to Scholarship Corridera is a celebrated teacher having won campus-wide honors, including the Daniel S. Augsburger Excellence in Teaching Award and the Undergraduate Research Mentor Award. Welcome to the podcast, Vanessa.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Can you tell us the central argument of your book?
0: This book was essentially Well, it was inspired by a lot of different elements, but I would say that one was as I was doing reading, preparing for classes, working on scholarship, noting how individuals would say in interviews or um, when discussing Othello that the play is not about race. And I think it depends you know, I think it depends on the person and on the situation, exactly what people mean by that. But it always struck me as a challenging comment, because when I write about this play, and when I teach this play, there is no way I cannot discuss race. In other words, to not have the double negatives, I always end up discussing race. Um, And so at its core, my book exposes how Um, Even though people may often say that Othello is not about race, uh, there is, in fact, no race-neutral Othello. And that is essentially its central argument or claim. And so part of what I'm doing in the book is looking at a mode um, with arguably the most latitude. And this is where I use the term reanimation, which for me is this umbrella term that encompasses adaptations, appropriations, citations. So essentially any work or moment that's bringing Othello the play or its characters or its language back to life. And so I'm looking at this mode with significant latitude in a time and sociopolitical moment in the US where people were actively encouraged not to talk about or recognize race, essentially post-racial America. And so the driving question that leads to that central claim that there is no race neutral Othello is what happens to Shakespeare's arguably most famous quote unquote race play. And yes, I know they're all race plays, right? Um, but this is arguably his most famous race play during a period um, within genre and during this period, right? Specifically a period where people are encouraged not to think about, not to talk about race, um, and in genres and modes that don't have to stick to the script, so to speak, right? The expectation isn't there with an adaptation, especially an appropriation or citation that it necessarily needs to stick to the uh, quote unquote original, whatever that is. And we can, you know, in Shakespeare's we argue about well, what is the original, but animation a- adaptations, appropriation citations don't have to do that. Reanimations don't have to. And so I, in the book, I trace the different frameworks that creators take when reanimating Othello and in doing so, I'm able to indicate what the more or less ethical representational approaches and frameworks are for engaging with Othello. Because even if people are going to say it's not about race, for audience members, for actors, right? For people who are performing, who are receiving, who are engaging with this play in a wide range, who are reading it, right? Um, so it can be readers, who are, whoever's engaging with the play and its reanimation, there is no race-neutral Othello. And so my argument is essentially it comes down to it's either anti-Black or anti-racist. And that might seem fairly binary and simple, um, but when you have a singular Black character at the heart of a play, um, it really is that fundamental. Uh, And so what are the ways that we can identify the stances between anti-Black and anti-racist? And that's what the book is trying to help illuminate and help people engage with.
1: Many of our listeners will be embarking on a dissertation or revising their dissertation into a book project. Um, I believe this project uh, was a was a departure from your dissertation research, right? <laughs>
0: yes. Yes, it was.
1: So what kind of advice would you give for someone, maybe their early career, maybe their mid-career, and they're thinking of transitioning to a new research area or pivoting in some kind of way? Um, what are the perils and possibilities of that kind of shift?
0: I think that the I'll start with the possibilities. Um, I think that the possibilities are to really find something that you're passionate about and to be able to be in conversation and dialogue and therefore hopefully in community with other scholars who are writing about a topic that you are deeply interested in. And because I write about race and racism and power structures, for me, it's not, this is not just some sort of, oh, I really like this topic and it's really interesting. It's also a deep personal Ethical, pedagogical, and scholarly commitment. Um, And so it's really been exciting to find a whole community of other scholars who are invested in this topic in the same way. Whereas if I were still writing about physiognomy on the early modern stage, which was my dissertation, I'm not saying I wouldn't have found community, um, but I'm not sure it would have led me to this community where the commitments are so wide ranging and I think so timely and important um, and that reach to so many parts of our profession and also our lives. Um, So I think that the possibility is a sort of freedom to be able to explore who you are as a scholar in a moment that doesn't come with Yes, graduate school is great. And I'm so glad that I was able to get into this profession and have the training that I did. But back, graduate school comes with a lot of baggage too. Um, and you are negotiating and finding who you are as a scholar with what your committee wants. And then also everyone's trying to be strategic because there are no jobs. So what, little thing might help you find a job. And then, you know, so should you do a dissertation on Shakespeare or do a dissertation that has no Shakespeare? All right. And what plays should you be addressing? And so all those kind of strategic things. And so the possibility when you move away from that is to let go of the baggage that you might have for me, and I won't speak for other people, um, the deep insecurities that came with my uh, thinking about myself as a scholar in graduate school, the passive verbs in my dissertation are horrendous because it was all this kind of tentative language um, and and really finding a pathway where I knew I had something to say. It was my voice. I was in dialogue with other people who I thought had really interesting things to say um, and to be able to strategize about how I could contribute to the field in that way. Um, but I recognize that even then I'm writing from a place of privilege because I have a tenure track job. And so I want to just acknowledge that even though I'm not an R1, I'm at a teaching and service intensive institution. Um, so for all those out there who are like, I can barely get an article done a year. Like, I hear you. I feel you. I understand. I still had a lot of privilege. And so, you know, I say all this coming from the fact that I have a steady job. Um, and so that's part of the peril We're missing out on so much scholarship that's out there that could be produced because we don't have a field right now that can provide jobs for all the amazing people um, who need the time and space and support to be writing. Um, I would say the other peril uh, of... Of, of switching. And I wouldn't say apparel, but one of the benefits of a dissertation is you're getting really intensive feedback, right? You're getting, you have your, or hopefully in an ideal world, you're getting intensive feedback from your committee. I get that everyone's experience is different, but that's, um you know, something that you're getting. I got great feedback on my project and I knew what I needed to do to change it into a book. Um, But I just couldn't do that research because of what I just talked about. I didn't have access to EBO when I graduated. I didn't have access, especially to EBO-TCP. I couldn't spend summers... In the archives because there was no money to send me to the archives, um, right? And so, um, and I get that there are always fellowships and all sorts of different things, but when you're not at a school with a certain name, those don't come as easily. Or when you're not at a school where you can spend time writing that fellowship or that grant because you're teaching so much, because you're doing so much service, you know, it becomes hard. Um, and so the peril sometimes of, of of switching is that you move into something, and and I had to, um, and I didn't always know where that community was going to come from that was going to give me that feedback. Um, And I wasn't, and this is perhaps particular to me, but I would guess not. I wasn't always comfortable approaching other people to ask them for help. And luckily, I was able to connect with some individuals here, my colleague and friend, um, Monique Pittman, um, who was very generous and much more advanced in her career at the time and was willing to sit down and read every word of the new stuff I was producing. And because she invested time in me, then I felt more confident. And then I was able to then make broader networks. Um, but it can be a challenge, right, to sometimes approach other people and be like, oh, well, you read my work. I know some people are incredibly brave and they're very good at self-promotion and they're very good at putting themselves out there for those of us where our personalities may not lend ourselves to that i think starting a new project can be challenging in that way um and then of course you're doing new research and so you go you have to find all these different avenues that you know coursework didn't prepare you for um, that maybe isn't always exactly what you're teaching um and so that takes time and some of us have the luxury of time and some of us don't um and so uh you know, I recognize that um, it's a complicated answer. I would just hope that my example demonstrates for those people that maybe don't follow the traditional route that it's not too late and there's never one way to write your first book. Um, and that hopefully, you know, that um, they can see someone else who didn't do the dissertation to first book and who, you know, didn't do it immediately either um, be inspired like, oh, yeah, it can happen. It's just going to look different and be a different timeline, but it can happen.
1: In reanimating Shakespeare's Othello in post-racial America, you focus in on this period between 2008 and 2016. The first date marks the election of Barack Obama, which seemed to inaugurate a period in which the US had, and I'm using scare quotes here, gotten past anti-Black racism. And the second date, 2016, marks a moment when post-racial America was revealed um, completely to be a, a not credible, Uh, idea. Let's start with that term post-racial and what kind of political and social work it was doing in those eight years.
0: So I discussed this at length in the introduction to the book. And one of the things that's tricky when you're talking about the history of post-racial perspectives in the United States is that it is intimately connected to a second term that is quite problematic. And that's the idea of the colorblind. And I will say that in the book, because I'm uh, citing so many people um, that I do use the term colorblind, but I do understand that that comes with ableist uh, connotations. So for the purpose of this conversation, I'll do a correction that I didn't do in the book in part because um, I didn't fully understand the discussion about the ableism associated with colorblind when I was writing. And um, so I'll correct it now. And so I'll use the term color evasive. Um, But that's to say um, that the idea of the post-racial is essentially we are past race right? We don't need to be having a discussion about race. And what that really is code for is we don't need to be having a discussion about racism. And this is not new. This is not just from 2008 to 2016. So philosophers, historians um, identify the idea of the post-racial as appearing earlier in the concept of the color evasive, right? We don't see, I just see the person, right? I don't see race. I don't recognize or acknowledge it. And Carol Anderson, for example, talks about that this is um, in in, uh, white rage that this is the move that, that what she could she and she I'm quoting her when she says it's a colorblind move post Jim Crow right where it's all about okay we live in kind of a racial utopia we had racial strife um, but now we don't see this and it's a way to create a sense of racial innocence and the post-racial is an extension of that racial innocence it's to say we don't need to talk about race anymore because racism is over Right. Um, And then what happens then is because you're asking what sociopolitical work that does is if you're not talking about racism, then inequities and well, social inequities based on race and racism um, mean that they, they are allowed to be seen or people can see them as individual problems. Right. So they start to pathologize individual people, which easily turns into individual groups, which is not individual. Right. But particular groups. Um, And so without looking at systems and without looking at the systemic ways that racism continues to need to be that must be addressed. Um, So it's really a kind of way of the post-racial is a way of saying, okay, we're not going to deal with race, but you want to spin it in the positive. Right? Because you know there's some people who are like, are you sure racism is over? Like, oh no. It, and it becomes this sort of if you've ever heard anyone say, well, talking about racism is rude. Right? Or it just makes it just, talking about racism just makes people uncomfortable or it actually creates more animosity or hate. Um, no, it, it might make people uncomfortable. I will absolutely grant that. Um, but talking about racism is bringing to light something that's already there, right? It isn't about um, creating it. Um, And so the whole idea of the post-racial is to create a racial innocence that allows people to get away with not talking about, not recognizing, and therefore not addressing not just racism, uh, not just race, but racism, right? Which I think is the key because racism is all about the power differentials um, upon that they use race to excuse,
1: And I I know you've talked about this before in a talk um, at the Arizona Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies, that um, your project is also addressing two subfields that get um, sort of pushed to the periphery in early modern studies. One is adaptation, pop culture adaptations, and the other is critical race studies. Uh, can you talk about um, maybe the, the challenges of bringing those two um, subfields together in conversation?
0: Sure. I, I would say that I've been really encouraged over the last few years uh, because pre-modern critical race studies has moved from, especially 2014, and I talk about this in one of the chapters in the book, um, from uh, a part of the field that was, you know, at the center and, I mean, excuse me, off center and somewhat marginalized um, to the center, right? I mean, if you look at, all you need to look at is a program for the Shakespeare Association of America, for instance, um, and see that uh, it is now not quote unquote a subfield, it is a field. In fact, you could argue that it is itself a field and then other areas are subfields within it, right? Within pre-modern critical race studies. Um, And that Shakespeare studies might be a subfield within this broader umbrella. I'm not making that argument, I'm just saying, you can see that it has become really central and it is its own work. And I think that's really important. Though so I will say um, that is how what it looks like in the U.S. I think there's a lot of room for growth um, in other places, right, in other global spaces to have conversations about race and the pre-modern era. And I will also say that you see a movement forward in Shakespeare studies um, and perhaps early modern studies more broadly that may not be as advanced in other pre-modern areas. Um, But I will let the scholars who are from those areas address that particular fact. Um, But, you know, when you do the reading, scholars mention that, right? And so I think that it is important to note that since, even since I started writing the book, that the pre-modern critical race studies has become, and I think really importantly, more central to early modern studies and Shakespeare studies. When it comes to adaptation and appropriation, I think it's really interesting. It's central, I think, in a lot of classrooms, right? So people will teach an adaptation or they'll teach an appropriation or they'll show a film in class or film clips or even performances that could be considered adaptations, unless you're a scholar who thinks all performances are adaptations, which is an argument I absolutely um, adhere to. Uh, But when it comes to scholarship when it comes to um who's going to you know the, the markers in the field that indicate that something has authority that something has prestige um, it is not as central as other subfields right and if you just look at graduate school training and I write about this a little bit in the epilogue right you're going to get training in book history you're going to get training in um historicist archival work and that is important because I still use that and it is important for my teaching it is important for my scholarship um, but you're not often going to get training in performance and performance history <laughs> um, you're not going to get training training. training and adaptation and appropriation uh, and You know, So those are tools you use as a teacher, but then the assumption is those aren't going to be tools that you use as a researcher. Um, And I get it. I understand that the question is, well, are these adaptations and appropriations going to be significant 10 years from now, right? Um, We don't always know. Uh, And then, of course, there's the issue that sometimes people do poor scholarship, right? They just describe something and, you know, you want something that might be um, more rigorous. But of course, there is also poor historic scholarship. Um, And so I think that one of the things that I'm trying to do in the book is really create uh, an example for students, for graduate students, for colleagues um, of what rigorous engagement with pop culture, performance, contemporary archives looks like, right? I'm using theoretical models, um, putting different contexts into conversation. Um, And so it is historicist work. It's just historicist a few years ago, right? Not hundreds of years ago. Um, It's looking back to a more recent history um, rather than one that is farther removed. Um, But I think it's a really important uh, conversation. And my hope is that uh, we can continue to to articulate the value of having um, these conversations and what some people would call presentist conversations um, in dialogue with historicist conversations in the field. Because for me, it's not an either or, it's a yes and, right? So how can we have both in conversation, how we can see the value of both of those with each other, rather than keep everything so siloed. And to give primacy to one sort of methodology over and over and over, I'm not sure that's always how a field
1: grows. Well, I, I think reanimating Shakespeare's Othello in, in post- social America, your book is a wonderful articulation of these possible pathways that um, that we can we can pursue. Um, the, the first chapter looks at Kill Shakespeare, which is a a, a new text for me. I hadn't read it. Um, it's a comic book and you situate it within the history of representations of race in comic book history. Um, What is different about adapting Othello for a comic book rather than for other genres and forms?
0: So I think there are several elements that make comic books a really interesting uh, mode or genre. Well, because there are genres within comics, right? So an interesting mode to consider. Um, One is that it's visual. And I get the performances too, right? But when you have something that's creating a visual element for Othello, that's always going to add another level of representation representation that any creator needs to think about right how is this man being depicted um as i talk about in the chapter uh in kill shakespeare he is big and burly and um often half naked and right very muscular and so really playing into a lot of stereotypes about black masculinity um that are not all that different from the way that black men have been depicted across comics over time right um at the same time, I think comic book uh, comic series uh, and comic books are significant because many of them are fantastical. Um, and so they are not, limited necessarily by the same strictures and structures as Othello when you're performing Othello, say at the Chicago Shakespeare Theater, especially if you're not calling it an adaptation. When an audience is paying a hundred and some dollars a ticket, maybe it's a little less, but when they're paying all this money for a ticket, they have a certain expectation of what you're they're going to see. And that doesn't mean you can't upend that expectation, right? But there is this kind of what is the traditional or the original. And with comics, right, the whole beauty of comics is they're fantastical. Right? They have these fantastical elements. So things can be almost anything. You have alternate universes and multiverses and different versions of even one character. Um, and so I think that what's exciting about comic books is that they don't have those uh, strictures and limitations or they have fewer. Um, but then the question is, why can't that same creativity and fantasy and magic extend to a many characters of color, right? Especially black characters. And then B for my particular argument to Othello. Um, And then of course, I think that comic series are interesting because they are often meant for young readers. I don't think Kill Shakespeare is, if you look at the visuals and the topics, but they're often meant for young readers. um, And they also then have a wide reach and circulation, right? They're cheap you know, they're, they're inexpensive. You buy them, they can easily circulate. You can hand them off to someone else, um, which is really different than a performance, right? Which is ephemeral and you catch one moment. And hopefully you're there unless there's a, you know, a archival recording um, or even a film, right, which, of course, is is more accessible than a performance. Um, but it's a different kind of experience than just hand it off and be like, oh, like I read this comic, like you should read it, too. Right. Um, and so I think that uh, that it's it's a particular genre that shows the possibility that can exist when it comes to particular genres and modes that but when it comes to othello as i do with my reading of kill shakespeare demonstrating that even within all the fantastical visual possibility right othello con- seems to continue to be mired in stereotypes right that come from stereotypes associated with black masculinity in the u.s stereotypes associated with Othello specifically, right, and then stereotypes associated with um black characters, especially in this case black men, uh, within the comic book tradition.
1: One of the things you touch on is, um, I I believe uh, a commentator compared Othello to a Hulk, Bruce Banner and the Hulk that that character, and uh, you reflect on the ways in which the Hulk is allowed access to certain affects that Othello cannot, or that there are um th- there's a cultural context that, that makes their their bodies readable in different ways. Can you talk about that?
0: For sure. You know, and I want to and I want to be conscientious about anytime you talk about comic books, just like, well, which Hulk and from which series? <laughs> and so right, okay, yes. But traditionally speaking, one of the fascinating pieces about Hulk is that he has an alter ego or he is the alter ego, ego for Bruce Banner. And so I'm going to just stick with, um, though I have read other series, I'm just going to stick with the perhaps most accessible um, uh, depiction of Hulk because it's the most uh, popularly recent, which is uh, right. Mark Ruffalo playing Bruce Banner and um the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and so if you just take that as one example, right? Um, Mark Ruffalo plays Bruce as um, really thoughtful. He is unassuming. If you look at the casting, right, he is much. Um, like while yes, also handsome, much shorter than say Chris Evans, right? And um, and I am forgetting who plays Thor, Chris, another Chris, Chris Hemsworth. Chris there we horses. go, got there. Uh, Chris Hemsworth, right? And so um, you know, he doesn't have that sort of like traditional manly man uh, depiction that some of the other superheroes have. Um, and yet, right? And that's part of the point because then when he rages out, part of the like comedy in the series and then also the kind of poignancy in the series when he doesn't want to be Hulk anymore, right? When he wishes he had a normal life, especially- the beginning is the fact that there's a distinction between Bruce Banner and his alter ego Hulk who rages out, right? And so in one character, however, you're allowed to see different affects, you're allowed to see different desires and striving, and so you're allowed to see some complexity, right? Even within a movie tradition where people are like, well, now they're just kind of telling the same stories over and over, and these are getting really simplistic, right? You're allowed to see this distinction within this character. In Kill Shakespeare, Othello isn't given that duality. So forget more than just two sides. Like he barely just gets one side. Um, and it is incredibly limited, almost animalistic. He's bar- He gets to speak sometimes, and as the series progresses, it's less and less, and he like grunts and sometimes like just reduces like, screaming, or, uh, um, and then it eventually becomes mad. Like He loses his mind and is mad in the bowels of a ship. And so not only is he not allowed an alter ego, which is one of the crucial ways, as scholars have pointed out, and I talk about in the chapter, um, scholars have pointed Out that alter egos are a crucial way of creating depth to. Um or for comic um comic book characters, but also these alter egos have often been ways of thinking through issues of identity, right? And what identities are allowed to be out in the open and which pieces of identity have to be hidden, right? Which pieces of identity are accepted and which um are not, right? And so it has been the alter ego piece, has been a um scholars argue, a way for comic books to think about sociopolitical issues um and the issues of identity and representation representation. And Othello doesn't get that, right? He is described in Cole Shakespeare as Hulk-like in the pages where he's drawn. But unlike Hulk, he doesn't get that depth and that multifaceted um, characterization. And he's just a very flat character. And so I end up arguing that he almost essentially serves as a prop for the self-actualization of the two white heroes, uh, which in this case are Hamlet and Juliet.
1: In the second chapter, you look at Othello the Remix, Uh, And as an example of uh, color evasive racism, and in particular, the way the Hugh Brothers obscure uh, race and racism by relying on comedy. Can you talk to us about that production and how it sits within the co-opting or the mainstreaming of rap?
0: So, I want to shout out my students here because they are the ones who went and saw Othello the Remix first. And they were like, oh, Dr. Critter, you have to go see Othello the Remix. I was like, okay, okay. Um, Because I just hadn't gotten over to Chicago to see it. And so, shout out to them for uh, taking the time to introduce me to things that they know that I will be interested in. Um, And Othello the Remix is really interesting because the Q Brothers, this is not their first uh, hip hop adaptation of Shakespeare but every um, piece that they had done before Othello the remix was an ad raptation as they call it of a comedy Um, and so this is the first tragedy that they tackled and I think it's really interesting because you can tell that there's anxiety about this decision um, in their script and in their performance because uh, they have this line where one of them says oh, Othello, that's a tragedy, right? And then another one responds, yes, but there's comedy in it. Um, and we already know that the quote-unquote comedy or laughter um, in Othello can be really probably a, a, a serious problem, uh, right? Because the person with the most comedic lines is often Iago. And he's speaking them directly to the audience with this kind of direct access, especially when uh, performances sh- choose to make it a sort of direct address, <laughs> right? To the uh to, to to the audience. And so the audience is kind of drawn in to Iago. Iago's often, as I discuss in the chapter, performed um, by a more experienced actor, right? Um, so compared to a lot of actors who are cast as Othello. Um, and so you have all these elements that are kind 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 of playing into Iago as like this potentially charming, certainly Machiavellian character. And I'm not the first person to say that, but comedy is part of that, right? He gets the audience to laugh. um, And because he has these lines and then, you know, he's making fun of Rodrigo, et cetera. Um, And, but he also gets the audience to laugh at Othello. And I bring this up because to say there's comedy in Othello um, may be true, but you need to think about what that comedy is doing in the play. um, And then what happens when that comedy is taken out and then amped up. Um, And then to add to that, right? So comedy is one element. And then you have the hip hop element. Um, Hip hop within itself carries a lot of history when it comes to cultural appropriation which i talk about in the chapter um so you know hip hop starts off uh, as this um potent and important uh Genre and mode, right? Because it's not just so rap is part of the genre, but hip hop is more than just that. Um, genre and mode um, for people of color to articulate them their joy and um, their expertise, right? And um, but also to articulate social socio political issues. But that's very different from the type of rap that got. Uh, kind of co-opted and promoted in the culture wars especially of the 90s and 2000s on um, what was called and I hear, I'm using scare quotes here you know gangster rap right and here you're thinking about um, Biggie and Tupac um, and you know if you're thinking like that uh, West Coast versus East Coast even Jay-Z um, and so if you're thinking about that sort of rap that's not to say that there aren't sociopolitical elements to that. But um, a lot of what was promoted on radio airplay, on MTV, right, by conglomerates, corporations um, from, you know, the, uh, but from the industry, which is white dominated, wasn't necessarily the sociopolitical critique, um, but instead kind of the, again, quote unquote, like ghetto fabulous lifestyle. So the money, the misogyny, um, especially against, against Black women, the violence, uh, the drug use, right? The idea of the hard knock life. without thinking about where that hard knock life essentially comes from what has created it right so yeah you might address the ghetto but what created the ghetto so when the q brothers bring that together right this history of rap and then this comedy and they put it all together um what happens I argue is that they end up with uh, an Othello that is in fact really playing into a lot of racial stereotypes that come with rap and hip hop at large that come with Othello, right? And then you can kind of feel good or not feel bad about those stereotypes or you're encouraged to ignore them. So use the term colorblind um, in the chapter, right? You're encouraged to not see them. Um, They're color evasive in essentially, I argue in the production that they create um, because comedy allows you to laugh it off, right? Oh yeah. You're going to make a joke about a fellow saying ax versus ass. Well, that's funny. Right. And so um, and there are moments though that they do have this like all and I talk about this in the chapter, where it's like they really do almost kind of get there when it comes to seeing the racial oppression of Othello and to really capitalizing on how hip hop could be a great way of exploring um the oppression and marginalization of black men, right? Um, and the construction of their identities in the US. And there's a moment where they all, they really do almost get there when it's um between Brabancio and Othello. Um, but then It's like they get too nervous or something and then they kind of back off and then everything's about kind of being funny again and joking. Um, And I think that that's a disservice to the complexity of Othello and to what adaptations and hip hop, right, can do with Shakespeare.
1: And I think a a couple of those changes, um, if I'm remembering this correctly, um, Othello says he doesn't know his pops, that he's alienated from his father and that his mother is struggling with drug addiction, neither of which I think has any connection to the play right neither of those things are grounded in the play i was just um thinking as as examples of like bringing something from rap or how the q brothers are um uh, extracting some tropes from from this music um and maybe um perpetuating the stereotypes that you're talking about
0: right and I think, um, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm one of those adaptation or appropriation scholars. It's like, oh, it has to be like the original, right? Because you're you're correct. That doesn't come from the play, right? Othello says he's descended from, you know, he, he from kings, like that. He has this kind of royal lineage. Um, so I, I understand, right, that there's a possibility there that they didn't bar- that they didn't pursue, even if they weren't going to pursue that right? Even if they wanted to say, you know, he talks about his mom being on crack, like she's a junkie, right? He didn't know his father, as you pointed out. um, And that hip hop becomes his way of escaping the streets. Um, Those are all tropes that are part of that kind of gangster rap, that kind of, um, you know, ghetto fabulous lifestyle um, that was promoted in the 90s and 2000s. And in the chapter, I include some numbers of how popular rap got, um, especially with young white audiences, right, who were able to listen to rap and kind of think about and be thrilled by the dangers of the quote unquote streets, right, and the coolness of rap without really having to then engage with um, the kind of seedy underbelly that has created those streets that has created the crack problem that has created what, like, why do we use the term crack anyway? Right. That has created those issues in the first place. So they get all the cool, right. Without any of the burden, essentially. Um, and I think that that's part of what the production does, right. They take all these elements and I don't think there's anything wrong with necessarily taking those elements because you can then, you know, by, by depicting them or talking about them, you could critique like, well, why is his mom a junkie? Right. Why would he feel that hip hop is the only way to get out of the streets? Um, But there is, for example, no kind of conversation about that. There's no conversation about like, he. there's never a moment where he has any pressure um, from some sort of, you know, big wig or corporate entity to not have sociopolitical elements in his and his music uh, when in fact we know that that happened to actual artists right and so um, it just all kind of feels a little bit like window dressing to make Shakespeare edgy right and they are like such the cute brothers are such lovers of rap and hip hop and they know their history and they know the genre and so it's not just about making Shakespeare edgy it's about like doing something that they love Um, but I think it's just also a set of nerves about going there when it comes to race and while I think you probably Need to go there when it comes to rap and hip hop in general. When it's tied to Othello, you really notice um, when you're using all these tropes, um, especially when you don't have a whole, you know, uh, a set of albums to kind of create a point and counterpoint. Because Imani Perry talks about how the kind of gangster persona can be a way, um, like a, a way that that rappers on purpose adopt the stereotypical persona but in order to critique those stereotypes, but they do it over a series of albums over a whole career. And here you have 90 minutes, um, right? And so it just raises questions about what is adapted and adopted um, and what they're kind of too anxious to to do in those 90 minutes.
1: The first season of the podcast Serial makes a passing but revealing reference to Othello. Hosted by Sarah Koenig, the first season is about the trial of Adnan Syed for the murder of Hey Min Lee. How did this allusion to Othello serve to legitimize Koenig's white framing of the case while not really prompting Koenig to reflect on the implicit racialization at work in the podcast and in Syed's legal case?
0: This is one of those moments where I was listening to something for just interest. I like true crime. And so I was listening to uh, the first season of Serial and then I'm, like oh did she just mention shakespeare so i you know go back and listen i'm like yes and it just kind of sat in my mind for a, a little bit and then eventually i was like oh i have something to say about how this is working um once i've listened to the whole series and it's interesting cuz it's not like kane references shakespeare over and over again it's almost a throwaway moment um it's one of those moments that initially you're almost like oh how could you write an article, nevertheless, a whole chapter about this moment, um, because it's this moment just becomes a catalyst for me to discuss, um, in the chapter, the idea of the white racial frame and the different strategies that the white racial frame uses to center whiteness and to marginalize people of color. And that is essentially what I'm discussing, um, and talking about, um, I, I talk about how Koenig does this, right? How she centers her affective impressions, right? Her, uh, depictions or characterizations of um, particular individuals who are like, she's talking about a bunch of teenagers, right. From the nineties and um, who uh, essentially they're almost all, if not all people of color, right? And then, um and and she's really ends up in a way, one of the uh, one of the individuals, a cultural a cultural critic um that I cite in the book talks about how she essentially makes herself another main character. And I don't think that that's necessarily bad, but she's not treating the idea of race with care, um, in fact, because it's kind of interesting. She has one episode where she really delves into it. Um, but when you're talking about race, And um, this particular case, it's more than just one episode. And my point within the chapter is to really question the really stark division that we make while race in the early modern period was fluid. And I don't have a problem with that argument, right? Um, That it meant religion and also phenotype and also lineage and, 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 Um, but what I do tend to push back against especially in the chapter is the claim that somehow today race is predominantly biological um, because Stuart Hall makes it clear that race is a sliding signifier and that as much as yes people have made race biological in the modern era, um, in practice <laughs> race is slippery right and that means that you know it is also fluid and that's why I do this kind of deep dive into the use of Shakespeare, but then also into Koenig's treatment of race and religion and ethnicity and culture to demonstrate how fluid are conceptualizations of race across audiences. A her, the cultural critics who talk about serial, right? People who wrote about serial, you know, in comment, uh, you know, comment, commentating on or commenting on what happened, um, you know, and kind of sleuthing about the case, right? Um, There's a slipperiness to race, even today. And so I think it behooves us to recognize that both culturally and within early modern studies, uh, because if you, it is, it is absolutely important to think about phenotype for sure. Um, But in addition to phenotype, in addition to biology, there are many ways that we racialize people. And and here's where I think uh, what I was saying earlier matters our historicist approach to race, right, and thinking about its fluidity can be really helpful to thinking about the trans-historical or cross-historical, I think is more accurate than transhistorical because it does change. But the cross-historical connections um, for how we employ race as a cultural concept in order, right, to sometimes advance racism, right? And equities of power, um, but then also sometimes to like help us not see, and we're back to the post-racial, not see race and not talk about it. Well, I'm really talking about religion, right? Well, when you're talking about a Muslim in Baltimore, right, yes, pre-9-11, um, but uh you you're still talking about um, you know, anti-Islamic sentiment that very quickly gets racialized, as the language of the podcast demonstrates. And so I think it's really, really important to be able to to recognize that fluidity happens today so that we can be aware of all the ways that we may be complicit, right? In in promoting racism and the the different ways that we can um, fight against it. And, you know, need to be aware about how it manifests and proliferates today.
1: I want to transition to the grouping of a fellow reanimations you discuss in the book that are made by creatives of color. You identify some truly disturbing uh, inequities in the U.S. theater scene. Um, Can you share with us some of the statistics about over and under representation in terms of casting and directing in live theater in New York City and nationally?
0: Absolutely. And so I'm working off of public policy documents that, of course, predate the writing of the book. And so they're a little old by now. And so I want to recognize that there um, are... Efforts to diversify both in the New York theater theater scene and across the US. Um, But these are really disturbing numbers because it demonstrates just how far there is to go, right? So even if there are efforts, there's still so much to do. So from 2013 to 2015, Actors Equity uh, noted that 71% of contracts for acting went to Caucasian members. um, And that could be a lower estimate because there were 20% of membership that they could not identify their racial or ethnic background. Um, so that 71% could actually be more significant um, and actors equity also noted in that same period from 2013 to 2015, when it comes to the New York theater theme, theater scene specifically from 2016 to 2017, 66.8% of roles on Broadway went to Caucasian performers. So that just gives you a sense of when you see, for example, on great performances, um, something like the public Shakespeare Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing, or later the adaptation Mary Wives, when it's an all black cast, how significant something like that would be. Right, if you're having 66.8% of roles on Broadway going to uh, Caucasian performers. But when it comes to playwrights and directors, the numbers are even more significant. For playwrights, 86.8% were Caucasian. For directors, 87.1% were Caucasian. And um, the count, uh, which looked beyond New York and looked at the US in general said that 84.9. So it's even more intense. So 84.9% of stage work in 2016 to 2017 was produced by Caucasian writers. And the same holds for audiences. Um, So there I got, um, I found an NEH document um, and it, Demonstrated that uh, uh, looking across the US, right? So across different regions and looking um, at those who attended an artistic performance within the last 12 months, um, 61% were white. So these numbers demonstrate, and, and, and what was really interesting is I had the chapter almost entirely written. And then that letter that we see you, um, uh, the letter came out. So, you know, these are the numbers that demonstrate um, these are not just actors complaining, right? This isn't just an anecdote. Oh, well, this person didn't get a part, or maybe it was just, um, you know, one person's experience, right? He's, this is the data that's demonstrating just how challenging it is when it comes to performance, uh, when you're thinking about diversity, because it's not just about casting, right? It's about whose work is, get, who's writing um the plays, and then not only that, then whose work is getting produced, right? Who are the producers who's directing this work? I think that that's what American More thinks about really significantly is that it's not enough just to diversify on the stage, but it's also what perspective are the creatives bringing, right? Um, And so- when it comes to the directors, and then who's attending, um, because you know that theater's in a really precarious position, right, especially post-COVID, and so this is something to even think about now. Who has the money to go to the theater? Who is perceived as the, you know, main audience for any given performance, and especially in any given region, right, and then how is the particular performance, and then for our conversation, how is Shakespeare being imagined or reimagined or perhaps not so much um, in service of that audience. Right, um, and so you know, I think that this data is really significant, and I'll be excited to see. I know that this work is continuing to be done, though. I think a lot of it was paused during the pandemic. Um, so, what public policy documents are accessible in the next few years about where, um, especially after 2020, um, when all these uh, when all these theaters were like, oh, we have these anti-racist statements. So it'll be interesting to see what these numbers are at. Um, and I'll just signal the work of an emerging scholar, Darius Rhymes, who's doing a dissertation on this. Um, So look out for her forthcoming work because she's doing exactly this to try to figure out what's going on with the numbers on stage and then
1: behind the stage. I think that transitions really well into the next question, which is about Keith Hamilton Cobb's play American More, a brilliant, incisive work. I I had the chance to watch it in person. I think it really comes alive when you're experiencing it with an audience, um, can you summarize the play for us and then tell us how Cobb's play captures a, quote, adaptive revision?
0: So the play follows a middle-aged, self-proclaimed middle-aged actor uh, who's only ever called the actor. And he is going to audition for the role of Othello. And so essentially the actor spends the 90 minutes, roughly, um, of this play Kind of going back and forth between having a discussion with the audience and sharing his innermost feelings, his history, um, wh- why he uh, is drawn to Othello, but also what has repelled him about Othello in the past. Um, and he shares this kind of intimate um, set of perspectives and uh divulges this to the audience and we know this that he's talking to the audience because the lighting shifts um when he's talking directly to the the audience and then it goes back and forth between those moments um, and then his actual audition, right? And he's auditioning for this young 30-something white male director um, who's kind of up and coming but has a very particular vision of Othello the play but also Othello the character which clashes with the actor's vision of Othello. And so as he auditions, um the audience is privy to uh, why he disagrees with the director, how he views Othello right the history and i've used the word term baggage before right the baggage that um he brings when it comes to the color line in Shakespeare, when it comes to the fact that he's been told all his life, even when he was a young man, a teenager, that he was going to perform this role, um, right? Well, how he hated the role, but how he came to have empathy uh, for Othello. Um, and so, the and and that's all tied up into other broader issues when it comes to race in America, depictions of Black masculinity, and the stereotypes that um, a Black male actor has to contend with when he's auditioning for any role that only get amplified with Othello. You know, and then he also has meditations on stuff like the theater industry and education. Um, And so it's a really, you know, in such a short time, it's a really complex play, where essentially, I talked about how Iago gets to talk to the audience directly, American War is taking that structure and flipping it on its head, because here you have um, the sort of Yes, he's performing Othello, but like an Othello, also like character, right? Um, he is not, he is and is not Othello, right? He's Othello in these moments, but also not Othello, but he's the one who gets to talk to the audience. He's the one who gets to be intimate with the audience. Um, and the audience then has to grapple with their potential complicity um, in uh, what hap- has happened and is happening to the actor and this director that, um, you know, there's some ambiguity in the play, and Keith Hamilton Cobb has talked about that, but this director who may, not be that receptive to the journey um, and perspective that the actor is trying to bring to the character into the play uh, so that is essentially um to sum up the play and i talk about adaptive revision because a lot of times we think about adaptation and we think of um you know, a version of the play that is significantly shorter, um, that makes a lot of changes to the characters and to the language, right, to the milieu of the play. Um, And so I work from um, MJ Kidney's and Peter Erickson's ideas um, and build off of their arguments. So MJ Kidney essentially argues that every performance is a form of adaptation, but what it, but essentially, it's an audience and a particular community that's going to decide what the line is between adaptation and quote-unquote original. And that line moves, right? And so um, what I'm adding to that is kind of thinking through the ways that um, race plays a role in that line, right? And how who gets to perform which role and how. So it's not just casting, right? But how that particular role gets performed is part of that distinction between Oh, this is adapted Shakespeare, or this is you know original Shakespeare, um, and um, and and Erickson talks about right the importance of having a new vision and revision, um, and so I'm building off what 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 he discusses because he's talking about the play Desdemona, um, but I'm looking at the idea of plays that might be original and here i'm using scare quotes right um so what you like essentially they're not significantly shortened you're not changing character names this isn't 10 things i hate about you in other words right like that's what a lot of people think of when they think adaptation well okay if as many scholars have pointed out original shakespeare still holds the most authority on stage right We need to have and make space, and this is the adaptive revision, for those original versions um, to be more thoughtful and ethical and the perspectives they take to race, right? And the way that race and representation are depicted not in with casting and with the creative group who's comprising the play. So it's kind of creating more space on the spectrum between adaptation and original, right? To have a place here where there's someone who at least has a different perspective and is willing to adapt the perspective that a director, a producer, that the company is going to take and bring so that it's not just one actor working on their own them with their, you know, personal uh, motivation to try to really think through race ethically, but that everyone who's coming to the table for this kind of original Shakespeare performance is being as intentional about thinking through race as possible, um, and not just an Othello, right? Any play, as we pointed out, they're all race plays, um, and so to be thoughtful about race in each play as a team, as um, even when it's not "quote unquote" what one would say is an adaptation, and I and I'll just say. If you want an an example of that, I would say that the public's Much Ado About Nothing is a really great example. They didn't market that as an adaptation, um, and yet it's doing really beautiful and meaningful and interesting things um, with something that's still the original, but taking really distinct and thoughtful, meaningful perspectives on a play that's not traditionally a race play and yet has something potent and powerful to say about race in America um, because it had a different vision.
1: And I know you visited uh, the Folger Shakespeare Library in DC and looked at early drafts of Cobb's play. Um, I believe the first draft was um, written in 2014, and then um, a version was published by Methuen in 2020. Um, what did you see in the uh, the, the revisions? of American more.
0: So of course, there are all the little tweaks to language, etc. But as I close the chapter, one of the things I talk about um, is the way that Cobb really helpfully provided appendices, which include some of the cuts. Um, and he's incredibly generous when he talks about why these cuts were made. Um, And so when it comes to working with the director and dramaturgs and the producers of American War, the idea was that these cuts were made in order to make American War as cohesive and streamlined as possible. And yet, when you look at the cuts, it's worth noting that one of the cuts that's fairly significant is a meditation on education and race in education. Another is a significant cut based on uh, where, where the actor is meditating on and critiquing uh, the theater system, especially regional theater, um, where he talks about, there's like not enough time to rehearse. All right. And he talks about like the racial components of this when it comes to Othello um, and I think, and then there's another cut where he has he talks about his Desdemona, um, where she he had a Desdemona in college, and you know who who was this Desdemona to him, etc. Um, and so I don't talk a lot about the Desdemona cut, but I think the other two are really interesting because if you're thinking about well, who's going to be interested in a published text of Othello. I mean, excuse me. If you're, who's going to be thinking of a published text of American more? Right? It's going to be people who are interested in American theater and people who are interested who are often, you know, Shakespeare scholars, right? Um. In fact, and and I I think this is important to know. There were Shakespeare scholars, in fact, pushing and it came out the the published version of American more came out earlier because there were scholars online agitating and advocating for we need a version of American War that we're teaching. That's not just copies that we got from the vulture or that you know. Uh, Cobb has been so so generous to like help us access. Like, we want a, a version that we can hand our students and that uh, we can work off of. Um, and so, you know, there was significant interest from scholars and there is continued significant from scholars in this play. Um, But it's interesting to think about the fact that the moments critiquing systems, right, the educational system and the theater system, and especially some lines about how those two feed into each other are in some of those cuts. And I'll just leave it at that because, you know, Cobb has been really generous. I am a little more cynical than he is about why those might be there. Um, So I, and that's the beauty of it. We as scholars can look and decide why we think those may have been. There are more articles to be written about that, I'm sure.
1: I think the only prop, in American More is the Kim Hall edition of Othello. I I think that's the the main prop in the the play. And that edition of Othello published by Bedford St. Martins, I think was really transformative in how Othello was taught in the classroom. And Cobb's play American More also talks about um, race within the English literature classroom. There's a passage in Cobb's text, I had forgotten about this line, about a fraught encounter between the actor character and a college professor can you talk to us about that exchange
0: yeah you know if you're an educator watching american more and i had i watched it first before i ever was able to look at the script and so to me it was just like oh okay you know here I am. Right. And I'm not saying that I'm that educator, but I could be. Any of us could be. We actively have to not be. And so here I'm going to give a little shout out to um, Neta Mahizadeh and Umbering Data Boy and their anti-racist Shakespeare um, with Cambridge Elements because they have a whole book on all the strategies for teaching Shakespeare in race in thoughtful engaging ethical ways um and it's open access so if people don't want to be that professor right um their book is a great resource uh for for making sure you are not being that person but it just struck me um you know as a professor sitting there listening to someone talk about his college experience right um it's really moving, but also, again, a way of just thinking through who is complicit in the Shakespeare color line, right, even as the stage is open in a way that it wasn't, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, um, that doesn't mean that it's not perpetuated every day in a classroom. When And this goes back to where we started our conversation when professors and scholars insist that Othello is not about race and then they're teaching it to their undergraduate or graduate students. What then is it about? And what are they perpetuating? And if they think it's not about race, are they letting their students have an alternative voice and perspective to say, but maybe it is? I mean, so I think it's really important that and that happens really early on in this play um because he's talking about how you just see the prof- the teacher having all these kind of microaggressions where it's like oh that's not how you pronounce it or you wouldn't know how to do something a certain way or don't play that character play this character and this character is always you know the more in Titus Andronicus and then it's Othello this actor can't be he talks about Titania and he can't be Hal right Um and I'm not theater director, um, but I am a teacher and I have to think about my own role in the classroom um, to, if I'm going to talk about these plays, how do I avoid those microaggressions? How do I make my students feel included and seen and not excluded and marginalized? Um, Because obviously they carry that with them, right? And then, you know, I taught American more shortly after seeing it with Othello. And what was really interesting is that American More does make students feel seen. One of my students started, you know, she was incredibly emotional in class and saying, I am so grateful because it was so painful to see a Black man like my brother, like my dad, depicted in Othello in a way that I find really racist. And I know some people like, oh, it's not racist, it's critiquing racism. But my student had an affective experience where she felt it was racist, right? Um, And then to see a Black man so thoughtful and articulate and kind and engaging and smart and passionate and powerful in American More was really important because that's the Black man I know in my dad. That's the Black man I know in my brother. And so I think American More is really important um, in that regard. And so it's up to us who are teaching Shakespeare to think about, are we, when we teach about race, are we also providing Various inroads where students can see not just Black objection, but also Black excellence, right? And that may not be through American War, though I highly recommend it. It can also be through the other primary texts and the secondary texts that you assign in your class, right? Um, So that it's not just this kind of negative uh, depiction of Blackness or any other marginalized figure, right? Um, You know, you want to be really thoughtful about how you're engaging with these issues. And so I think that's a really important moment. And I will just say, like, I teach with the Kim Hall. (laughs) I teach with that edition. And you're right, it was really transformative for me to read and teach with it. Um, And if people want a really good resource, they should read Brandy K. Adams. She has a beautiful uh, um, short essay in Shakespeare about the meaning of uh, um, the actor carrying that particular edition in the book uh, on stage.
1: In 2011, Toni Morrison and Rokia Traore created an experimental operetta around the character Desdemona. By analyzing that operetta you explore what you call the Desdemona problem. What is the Desdemona problem?
0: So, I use the a concept of the Desdemona problem to talk about the tension that exists within performances, adaptations, appropriations, reanimations in general, with trying to create sympathy and empathy for Desdemona and Othello at the same time. It's almost as if it's a zero sum game. If you have sympathy or empathy from Desdemona, it's like there's just no space to create it for Othello. Um, and there's no space to recognize that yes Othello it, it's horrible he is, he abuses and his wife and murders her and so that's not to in any way excuse that but at the same time um there's then little room to be able to explore the idea that Desdemona, as Peter Erickson has really convincingly argued, um, uses discourse and language, whether intentionally or not, that makes her complicit, right, in the racial marginalization and abuse that Othello experiences. And so it's this kind of tension where you can't quite manage to center both of these characters and think about both of their types of oppression, right? Hers because she is a woman, and his because he is a black man in an all-white society. And you really see this in the plays that I discuss at the start of the chapter, um, uh, where you have Desdemona, a play about her handkerchief, and Goodnight Desdemona, Good Morning Juliet, um, where you have these 1990s versions of uh, what I call Desdemona plays that want to take these feminist reconsiderations and stances of Desdemona, the character, and Othello, the play, Um, and they do so in really different ways. But both of them do so uh, through strategies that really marginalize Othello. Um, In Good Night, Desdemona, Good Morning, Juliet, for instance, Othello barely appears and while these lines can be cut and transformed depending on who's cast, um, one of the you know discoveries in this play is that Othello is not really a Moor, right? And so suggesting that he was played by uh, originally a white actor, and that is in fact the case. Um, of course, those lines can be excised if a Black actor is uh, cast in the role. Um, But he, and then he's kind of, he's just dumb, right? Desdemona's smart and brilliant and um, Iago's a very obvious liar. And then Othello is barely on stage. And when he is, he's just a fool. He's a buffoon. Uh, And so that's one strategy. In Desdemona play about a handkerchief, um, there's a lot of emphasis on Desdemona and her freedom and her sexuality. um, But in it, she really demeans othello and right she she talks about how she sleeps with all these other men um because sleeping with them can take her from to different places like it's like by sleeping with them it's like as if she's traveling from place to place and getting the freedom that she wants as a young venetian woman and so you know one of the things that you wonder is like well why isn't the same happening with othello and then amelia describes Othello sort of stalking Desdemona, smelling her sheets right almost as if using language that depicts him almost as a predator and Desdemona as prey. Um, right. And so yes, of course uh Vogel, who is the author, um, is trying to create tension because as you're moving toward the end of Desdemona Play by a handkerchief, you know that you're coming to that scene in the bedroom, right? Where Desdemona is going to be murdered. Um, So yeah, she's building tension, but she's building it at his expense, right? Where she's really racializing him and making him seem animalistic. And what I think is really brilliant about the operetta Desdemona is that it makes space, it's really truly intersectional and thinking about the competing forms of oppression within one identity, but also between identities that come in contact with each other. And it makes space for, absolutely recognizing how desdemona as a woman faces oppression when it comes to her parents who want her to marry for status when it comes to the gender expectations that they place on her it talks about how when she laughs too hard or plays too much right her mother makes her stand barefoot in a puddle for 10 days right she makes it clear that her father doesn't love her and he wants to sell her off like he's treating her like you know um something like like goods essentially um it does that. And at the same time, right, makes space for thinking, for making it clear because Othello gets to speak, right? And it makes space for um, Othello to be able to say, I was racially abused, right? Everybody wanted me for my power and for my martial prowess, but they didn't want to incorporate incorporate me into society. In fact, they lifted me up just to pull me down, right? Um, He talks about his traumas that led him to where he was. He was a child soldier in this reimagining. And so I think, and, and then allows Desdemona and Othello to dialogue uh, with one another. And this is after Desdemona has dialogued with Amelia and with the maid that she once called Barbary, but who now has a name Saran. And so you, through these engagements, you see Desdemona having to confront her privilege, right? Her privilege of class with Amelia and her white privilege with uh, Saran and then with Othello. Um, and so it's really thoughtful, again, to think through um, how there is space in this one play for all those layers and complexities. These are imperfect characters who do imperfect things, and yet there is a thoughtfulness to try to get the audience to see right that there is also um, oppression that both of them face, and that then they take out on each other, right? And then they fuel each other in that way. And so I th- I think that it it really helps resolve the potential for the Desdemona problem. But as I end the chapter, it's really hard because it's a very inaccessible play. I've only ever been able to read it and see clips. Um, it can't really be reperformed uh and not not easily. Um, and so uh and Yana Thompson has talked about this as well, right? About the accessibility problem with the play um, and so it's great that it's accessible as something we can teach um, but I wish it were something that people could perform more easily because you see on YouTube people performing does amona play about a handkerchief people performing good night does Mona good morning Juliet um and it's not as easy to re- uh perform um the operetta because of the music and the and the language and the like particularities of performance um that go into it as Thompson argues
1: I've been looking forward to discussing these next two texts with you the Okay. The sketch um othello tis my shite from the uh, television sketch comedy key and peel and jordan peele's later movie get out in the sketch um othello tis my shite there's two black characters in uh, 17th century england and they go see this new play by shakespeare titled othello and we see them at various intermissions throughout the play come out. And you know, at first they're very excited that there will be a Black protagonist on the stage. And then at the end, or as the play progresses, they become increasingly disappointed with Shakespeare's representation. Um, how does uh, this Key and Peel sketch um, offer a different kind of reanimation? Of, Othello, of Shakespeare's text.
0: Well, I think part of it is, it's just so fascinating, right? Because it's just, it's a few minutes you know, two three minutes—it's a sketch, right? Um, and in part of it is who it chooses to center, and that's, like, you know, in part that's what the whole chapter is about. Um, the way that they establish the whole premise of the sketch, um, the focus is on the quote-unquote the Moors, and that's a—they are the early modern vo- version of um the valets, right? These two other recurring characters across the Peel sketches, and who are like love action films and love, you know, d- they they like get really really excited, but then they also get really excited about these um, other, you know, Anne Hathaway, for example. Um, so these things that could could potentially seem in, incongruent with one another. Um, so they're at this play. And I think that we're spending time with these characters, with their perspectives, with their voices. And then um, Shakespeare is actually really deauthorized because he appears. And then, kind of halfway through, um, this sketch, and it's just not. This is not like the var or the Swan of Avon. He's sniveling, um. Right. He at first tries to say, when, when they're upset with the representation, he tries to say, "Oh, it was Christopher Marlowe," and they say, "No, no, no. That's what you said with *The Merchant of Venice*. Right. We're not going to fall for it this time. Um. And he's just absolutely, um. Is slimy. He's slimy. Right. And they call him like Big Will and Willie. Right. And so the, you know, Shakespearean authority is both present, but then put to the side. Right. Because one of the things that they talk about is like they didn't think that executives at Comedy Central were going to let them do that <laughs> the producers were going to let them do the sketch because that, you know, they're going to be like, oh, who knows Othello, especially like what pothead watching this at two in the morning is going to know Othello. And that's a quote from Key and Peele in a Vulture uh, interview. Um, so, you know, th- and then at the end of the sketch, they have Shakespeare write another play, right, which is Shaft. Um, and so there's still that kind of Shakespearean authority, they want the kind of Shakespeare there. But then Shakespeare is also it's almost like Shakespeare's a means to an end. Right. And Shakespeare's also kind of marginalized and not marginalized, but like taken down a few pegs. Um, And, 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 the 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 kind of quick cut at the end suggests a sort of collaborative process that the two again quote Moors um have participated in the in the process and that they have been able to um the they have been what, what are the names or Tinsian or something I, I believe um that these two have been able to help create shaft right so it's not about oh, Shakespeare does it on his own, right? Shakespeare is now taking orders from or collaborating with, we don't really know, uh, with these two men. And I think that that's really a different version of Shakespeare than we often get to see in reanimations.
1: And then you discuss uh, Jordan Peele's a later movie, Get Out. And I don't know how much of the plot we want to summarize. I, I suppose it's about um, a black man and his white girlfriend visiting her family in upstate New York. I think it is, and, and it, it plays on some of the um, the, the themes of uh, Shakespeare's Othello, right?
0: Yeah, and I mean some of the structures too, right? They're leaving home and going somewhere else, which you know it's not Cyprus, but perhaps feels a little foreign because it's very, you know, traditional. Um, and I'm not trying to necessarily use an offensive term, but the kind of traditional WASP idea of like, right, upper middle class, right, very white, et cetera. Um, and Peel talks about the way that he wanted to write a film that was just kind of pulling, like poking holes in the kind of neoliberal idea of the post-racial. He was like, okay, the idea that we're post-racial is out of the, the cat's out of the bag. after the election, like the cat's out of the bag. And so what he wanted to do is kind of cast light or shine light on um, how we even got there and who are the people that have kind of insisted on this ne- ne- neoliberal idea um, and how that allows them to kind of appropriate and commodify, right, in ways that um, their kind of supposed racial innocence, because her dad, you know, she, they get there and her dad's like, oh, I voted for Obama, right? I would have voted again for another term. Um, the supposed racial innocence gives them access to. Um, so I think it's really and then, of course, he's using the horror genre, um, which has to trad- Additionally, just like comic books, not been particularly thoughtful or generous or kind when it comes to the representation of people of color, especially um, Black individuals He's taking that and putting the people who are typically the first ones to get killed off, right, and making them—sorry for the spoiler—but it's been a few years, right? Uh, the survivors of of the film, and so he's doing a lot of really smart things um, in this uh, in this place, so that there uh, in this film, so that there are absolutely overlaps with Othello, um, but then there are also some really important distinctions and putting them in dialogue. I think. Um, is is really productive because of that.
1: I think this might be a good time to discuss the concept of universality. You, you've already touched on it. Well, what counts for universality when we discuss Shakespeare? And what counts for universality in maybe a conventional understanding of American pop culture.
0: So when we talk about universal Shakespeare, right, it's the idea of Shakespeare for all people across all time. And that's not to say that there isn't anything appealing, potentially appealing about Shakespeare for all people for all time. Um, But and, and, and I'll just take a step back before I, I pursue that. But, um, you know, I think the field of global Shakespeare demonstrates how Shakespeare across the globe is really significant and a way of pushing back against um, a, a, a range of ideas, right, uh, that are global, right, global and local and thinking through how adaptations and appropriations, et cetera, um, created in these global spaces can utilize Shakespeare for really important and sociopolitical purposes, and sometimes not for sociopolitical, but really beautiful aesthetic purposes as well. That said... To make this claim that Shakespeare is for all people and all times so uncritically um, ignores the way that Shakespeare has also been a significant tool for damaging others. Um, Madeline Syatt talks about the Shakespeare system and how Shakespeare is used, uh, you know, in classrooms, right? And and we talk about this with American Moore, um, used in the theater industry, et cetera, to make people feel less than. Oh, they can't pronounce certain things, right? Or um, we know that Shakespeare was. A crucial tool to colonizing projects across the globe in the classroom, right? To in to help young children learn the kind of English way of life, the English way of speaking, um, English education um, at the expense of their own local languages, education, ex- uh, local writers, etc. Um, so you want the the idea of of universal Shakespeare is often really problematic, because it is a way of using a term without thinking through the way that very, very often um, universal equals white. Um, And that leads to your second question, because, um, you know, critical race theorists, and and Richard Dyer is a significant uh, voice here, but others as well, talk about how white and universality often go hand in hand but the white parts the quiet part it's the part you don't say out loud um and i have all these statistics that i think pair really nicely with the statistics that open the chapter on american more that demonstrate just how white the stories are that we tell in pop culture whether on television and film um and white being who gets to tell the stories who's cast in these stories who's directing these stories um and so uh universal across popular culture is often the equal to whiteness. But again, like I said before, that's the quiet part. You don't say out loud. Right. And so then everything else is specific or particular right it's a race show or a race movie um but is a show with all white people a race show or a race movie well okay take a show like brothers and sisters which i watched for years um and it's about an upper middle class if not even more a wealthy white family and it was really interesting but like everyone in that show or mostly i I know that there were some exceptions later on you know is a predominantly white cast and it's saying something about being rich white people in America, right? But we don't call that a race show the same way we might with a you know sitcom like Blackish. And so that's what it's like. Okay, what counts as universal on American television? Universal is almost always white. And I use some examples that aren't Shakespearean, um, like Fresh Off the Boat, for instance, um, to and, and creators who have talked about how producers, et cetera, will often make it very clear. Whiteness equals universal. Everything else is particular and specific. And an audience doesn't necessarily want that. You can only have so much, right? You want a little spicy, but not too much. Um, And so I think that that we also have to think about then when to go back to the first half of the question, when we're thinking about universal Shakespeare, not just all the kind of baggage that carries with it, like I mentioned, but then also the problem with the term universal itself, right? Shakespeare is a, has been an issue systemically. Universal is also an issue. So we need to be very conscientious about what happens when we put those two terms together and get out pushes, I think, against the idea of whiteness as universal and then can be used, I think, to read Othello in a more particular, um, less white-centered way.
1: You argue get out can help us to reread Othello in particular... Uh, the, the way in get out um the the role of microaggressions. So there's a scene in which a, a dinner sequence that gets increasingly more uncomfortable and um, the the protagonist, the black male protagonist sort of has to escape this dinner party. Um, How might get out? Uh, How does it narrate the need to escape the violence of white supremacy?
0: I think that Get Out really poignantly and powerfully communicates the various forms of harm that white supremacy enacts on Black individuals, right? So there are, um, there's a relational harm, you know, Chris thinks that he is in a loving relationship with his girlfriend and finds out, nope right she's in on it too there's the um actual physical harm that we see as he is chased as we look at the scars on the individuals who have been turned into the, you know, or undergone the coagula process, um, right? So, you know, he's bleeding, they have scars, um, right? They both end up dead at at the end of the the film. And again, I'm sorry for the spoilers, um, but they both end up dead at the film. So you have the physical harm. I think what's really important about the microaggression scene is you see the psychic harm, right? Because the question, you know, he starts to doubt himself, right? Um, Like, oh, is something off here? Or maybe I'm being paranoid, right? But microaggressions build and fuel that paranoia. And what the film demonstrates is it's right, right? It's not just paranoid. Like his friend goes to the police is like, something is off here. And they're like, oh, you're just being paranoid. And it's like, no, right. He's right. Something is wrong. Um, And so it shows the psychic harm. And so what you really see is like that the pressures that, because let me back up and say when people look at a fellow like oh but he's you know he's in command and they're calling him in the middle of the night because he's so important and he's so powerful that they need him to fight for venice it's like okay yes and yet they still call him the more right and they say, a far more fair than black but they're denigrating denigrating blackness even as they're saying like oh it's okay because like it's really not that bad i mean he's really more white than black right um and so it just shows that like these are forms of pressure and abuse as well, and so if you look at Othello, because often, we'll, like, right, you read the, uh, again, quote, unquote, original, and then you look at an adaptation, and I'm not trying to argue that Get Out is a strict adaptation of Othello, um, but it's certainly in dialogue, I think, with Othello in some ways, and I mean, we know Othello was on Peel's mind in some way, shape, or form, um, and so if you if you watch Get Out, and then you reconsider Othello in that light, you can see how all these little moments, you could see that there's a potential to read all these moments where Othello's not called his name as harm right? All these moments where, you know, blackness is denigrated in front of him, even if he technically himself isn't being denigrated as harm, right? Moments that are very explicit saying you bewitched my daughter, you're foul to look on how could she ever love you when she didn't love these really other good looking white men, right? As harm. Um, And it's a way to get back to dealing with that Desdemona problem. You see, it's not just like, oh, the Desdemona, you know, oh, she cheated on him. He's living in a society where he's constantly under stress, he's constantly under different forms of attack, even if a piece of what he offers Venice is valued. And I get it. So people are like, well, that's psychologizing a character. Okay. Well, it also allows us to think about how you might reconsider the play and reperform it, right? What if there was a performance that stressed all those moments as harmful instead of just throwaway moments, you know, in a room as they're creating tactics for dealing with um, what's about to happen when, you know, they're about to go uh, into conflict. Conflict, right? Um, what about what if there was someone who took that adaptive revision, as we talked about in a, a past chapter, and really thought about a version of Othello um, that did more with those seemingly minute moments, but moments that can, as Get Out shows, be very painful, right, and put you under stress um, that are uh, that and and harm, right? And just not just plain stress, but like in in serious racial harm and then personal harm. Um, and, and I don't know, you know, I will, I will just say, cause people always ask me, what would that Othello look like? I'm not a director Um, so I'm so happy to for the day where I might be able to see that but I haven't seen that Othello yet though I've been told I should watch the new Othello by the National Theatre from the UK Um, and so I haven't seen that uh, and I'm hoping to be able to watch it because I think it's from what I've been told is trying to do some of exactly what I'm suggesting um, here Uh, but that's one there should be more.
1: There's that mo- early moment in Get Out in which the Allison Williams character. Um, sort of comes to the defense of her, of her boyfriend, Chris, um, w- when they're stopped by cops, they're stopped by a police officer. And she sort of um says, you know, why have you stopped him? Why are you questioning him? But we discovered later that it, she had an ulterior motive, that she's trying to erase the paper trail that would connect her to, to Chris. I wonder, could that possibly inform a, a revision or a, or a, a um, restaging of the the senate scene in Othello, or something like that.
0: You know, I think that it could. I think um, it's interesting to to think about. I don't. I don't think that Desdemona in the play is as calculating as as the character in the film, and yet that doesn't mean that Desdemona does not have her own purposes for wanting to be with him, right? That her love can both be genuine and also selfish at the same time. Um, and that's one of the things that I think that Desdemona the Operetta does really well in demonstrating. Like she's in pain because the woman that she comes to know a Saran um, has died um, and she sees the same luster uh, in, in what she calls Barbary's eyes in Othello's eyes. And so there's like a very clear in the opera, like she's longing for the only person who seemed to love her, the only person who gave her care. Um, She's longing for that after it's been taken from her um, and finds it in him. And that's not to say that, again, it's not to say her love isn't genuine. He tells her horrible things about himself, right, Um, about his life at war, about what he's done, the sexual assault he's engaged in against other women. Um, And she accepts him and says, I can't forgive you, but I will love you in this space and that still doesn't mean that there aren't selfish elements of her love which we see right and so to go back to your question i do think that there can be um versions of like where you see that you can you can have these questions of like what is what shapes desdemona's love and and there is this one moment um, and I'm forgetting, I'm sorry that I'm forgetting this, the, the minutia, um, but I'm in the Royal Shakespeare Company, Othello, um, Iqbal Khan's Othello. Uh, there's a moment in that scene, in the Senate scene, where they're about to leave and, I, and Desdemona says something and Othello stops and gives her a look like what and then you know like and 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 um and then they kind of carry on but it was like like it was a a, a tiny moment where it was like he was kind of calling her out on like what are you saying and i think more of that right potentially showing his discomfort or the way that what she's saying is not okay right just because she said something is not okay um could be really significant. Like, what does it mean for her to say I saw his visage in his mind? Like, why can't you just see like you're saying, oh, I really saw his true self, like, not on his you know, body, but in his mind, like, oh, okay, but like, why not in his in his body, right? Um, And there's a racial element there. And so I think there are moments that productions could could call that out. And again, I'm not saying that it has to have no sympathy for Desdemona, but also like that's what Peel does. And what's fascinating, and I talk about this in the, or I write about this in the chapter, is like people still wanted to find Sympathy for her. They're like, oh, maybe, you know, and Alison Williams talks about this, like maybe she was, um, maybe she was uh, hypnotized too. And Williams is like, no, she's very clearly just a horrible human. But that is how deep the sympathy goes for white womanhood. And so I think it's really significant to acknowledge that as anyone rethinks Othello in the U.S. and in the U.K. and and anywhere and other places where white womanhood is held up as kind of a paragon of race, of innocence, of beauty, um, because there is then already inbuilt and ingrained cultural sympathy toward her um, that an audience is caring whether you want them to or not. So what work needs to be done to kind of think through? Um, the problems with Desdemona, even if she's not going to be as horrible as Alison Williams' character in okay. Get Out.
1: One thing I tracked across the book was the theoretical range, e- even in this conversation, um, media studies, scholarship like Amani Perry, critical race theory, um, like Eduardo Benilla, uh, Benilla, Benilla Silva, formalist critics, um, while still always feeling very coherent. Um, how did that diversity come about? And how did you synthesize these different methodologies so smoothly?
0: I appreciate you asking that question, because it kind of, it goes back to uh, just part of the earlier discussion we were having, where I really wanted to demonstrate, and I'm not saying it doesn't already exist, but I wanted to add to the archive of rigorous engagement with Um, contemporary popular culture and performance and the significance of that work. Um, And I think that that takes really thinking through what tools are going to elevate a reading of those works that aren't just, I'm going to describe something for 20 pages, because yes, it's important to describe something, but, and then what? So now you've described a performance, you've described a film, you've described a comic book, right? Right. And why is that significant? Um, And so it's not enough to just say, oh, like here's what's happening and describe how, even how race works. Like, why does that matter? How does this tie in Uh, because it's part of a network of connections. And this is kind of where I, I'm thinking about how to continue some of this work with next projects. It's the network of connections that these pieces are doing. It's not just about Kill Shakespeare on its own, but it's about Kill Shakespeare in conversation with other comic books. Anyone who picks up Kill Shakespeare might be reading as well as other depictions of black masculinity in culture, right? Um, including then in rap, which they that person who picks up the comic book might also listen to or is obviously familiar with. Rap is incredibly popular. Um, and so, right, so that brings the, These uh, chapters together because to talk about the depiction of Black masculinity, which you must talk about with Othello, you have to think about the way it permeates a wide range of pieces of culture and how, very often, more often than not, especially as the first half of the book and the epilogue discuss, um, these are deeply problematic racist stereotypical depictions, and then where are these moments of respite and these anti-racist versions of Black masculinity, and what are they in conversation with? And so I'm I'm glad that you found that they spoke to each other. I'm just going to give a shout out to my community of scholars and friends and student workers and everybody who helped me think through these chapters and helped me write better and make sure that they were tight, because that was people giving me feedback and being really generous with their time and attention um, to make sure that it all fit. Um, But it was also a lot of work, uh, too. It was a lot of reading. It was a lot of pushing myself into areas that are not my primary um, area of expertise, and then trying to be really careful to make sure that I was reading widely so that um, I had... uh, you know, ethical citational practices. And that doesn't mean that every voice made it into the book. And so my hope is always, oh my goodness, if I left something out, that person needs to make it into something in the future, right? An article, the next book, whatever the case may be. Um, But to really try to ground, um, especially, and then I'll just say, um, it was really important for me to ground the book especially in Black feminist theory, because Black feminist theory really gave me a set of tools that allow me to talk about race and allow me to talk about Blackness when in fact, I am not Black, right? I am a guest talking about these issues. Um, And so it's really important for me to highlight the voices that made the sacrifices personally and professionally um, that those, the rest of us can then borrow those tools from Patricia Hill Collins, from Kimberly Quenshaw, from Bell Hooks, right? To think about, these uh, and many others look at look at the bibliography, um, and then you know in in my field too, Margot Hendricks, Sienna Thompson, Kim F. Hall, um, Joyce Green McDonald, people who have done that work, um, again at a, a significant personal and professional cost, right? And and to really elevate those voices, and so I think that's part of where the cohesion comes from too. That those voices drive so many of the chapters, even as I'm bringing in these other pieces um, because that those are the voices that transform my thinking. And so then I want to offer them up to readers to help. Right. Not to say that readers don't know them. Right. But to be like, Oh yeah, I remember that passage. or I want to go back to that book. Or if they don't know them to help maybe transform their thinking as well with these really powerful um, voices.
1: I like talking to guests about writing style. How do you approach academic writing? Are there, um, are there academic writers you admire that are models for your practice?
0: I love to strike a balance and it was depend on the reader whether they agree if I've struck it or not, um, uh, between a professional voice but also accessible. Um, and some pieces will be a little less formal and others are a little more formal depending on where they land. Um, but you know, I will often hear people say, or you have to when you're writing a book proposal or a collection proposal, um, who's the audience for this? And, you know, often it's, oh, it's gonna be graduate students and Shakespeare scholars. I work with a predominantly undergraduate population, and I have seen that with the right time and with the right belief in them, that they can engage really intelligently with this work too. And so I want to write pieces that they can read and feel like it's challenging them and pushing them as it should, but also that they can understand. I don't want to be unnecessarily dense. I also was aware that I wanted to create a book that would speak to people both within and outside of the field. And so that means you're thinking about different audiences. I'm thinking about the pre-modern critical race scholars who use critical race theory all the time, great they know this work so they're coming to other right they know all that theory and so they're coming to it for other reasons but I might get someone who is interested because they're teaching a fellow who isn't as familiar with critical race studies and so right because not everyone in Shakespeare studies teaches with that so I need to be mindful that I may have someone who's less familiar coming to the book and then my hope and I know this is hard because we often you know stick within our our you know silos and our fields but I might have someone in performance studies or media Media studies or American studies because this is an American studies book as much as it is a Shakespeare studies book because it's thinking about um, you know American culture um Americans these are individuals who also need an inroad and so i want my work to be able to reach a wide range of audiences and so i want to create a style that's as appealing as possible um and that means i try to be engaging and i try to be accessible but of course also professional um, and to model that and so you know you asked i've already kind of mentioned people um across the podcast that have been really inspiring to me um which are people who are pushing you to think in new ways, um, but that are also writing in a way that you're not sitting there flustered by a sentence because it is so, because it is so dense right? And I, I need editorial help with that. So again, thanks to the community who helped, because I'm a fan of the long sentence, a huge fan. Um, and so I'm, I'm really grateful to everyone who was like, oh, you need a short sentence here, but I want a style that is going to reach uh, a wide range of audiences, both within academia, but also when I'm talking about from undergraduate to, um, you know, my peers. Uh, and I hope that, 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 that is what I achieved. Um, and, uh, I I try to model after people who I think do that in their work as well.
1: You're a well-recognized teacher. Um, You've won several awards at Andrews University for your teaching and mentoring. Um, How do you approach teaching this material in the classroom? And how has doing this project informed your teaching?
0: So this project, one of the things, like I said, I teach at a teaching intensive institution. And so to make my research work, um, I try to design classes where teaching and when possible, and this is actually often not possible, um, but when possible, I try to design classes where teaching and research can feed into each other. Um, But I also teach a lot of other stuff that isn't Shakespeare, um, that's more about like American studies and gender studies and critical race theory, et cetera. However... Um for instance, I would teach I taught a graduate course, a research methods course. And so I made that whole research methods course about Othello, <laughs> right? And just okay, so but and and so a lot of these uh adaptations and reanimations made their way into that class because you read Othello and the scholarship, and then also um these adaptations, appropriations, etc., uh, made their way into the course. Um, but I think the broader question is how when I'm teaching issues like Shakespeare and race, um, one of the things that I try to remember is what I mentioned earlier. Uh, it can really easily turn into a class where all you just see is abjection of characters of color, especially of blackness. And so I think it's really important to highlight. So I just taught a Shakespeare race and pop culture course Um, that essentially focused on uh, pop culture from uh, in in the US. Um, And I wanted to make sure that I was highlighting um, race in a multiplicity of ways, um, thinking through uh, creatives from a bunch of different backgrounds, right? Um, So that my students, because we have quite a diverse population I teach here, so that my students could see themselves represented, not just in the plays, but then also by the people creating those plays, like this is what, right? Um, And I think, uh, and and then part of what I tried to do too is create a balance between yes, reading texts that are like something like American war that looks at like the pain and trauma that race and uh, racism causes in the U S but then also thinking through other texts that um, treat race in different ways, or there are complicated um, and that show beauty and aesthetic beauty and that show um, joy. Right. So I I taught Mary wise because it showed black joy. I taught um, black Lucy in the bar to ballet because it also depicted yes, the trauma of Lucy and her blackness and what that means for her, um, but also the way that Lucy then comes to own her sexuality, right? And so I think it's really important as we craft classes um, to be thinking about how students are going to see, are students gonna see themselves represented? And if so, Is it always in a negative light? That's a long semester to spend (laughs) seeing yourself in a traumatic way, right? And so, um, so, and and then again, like I mentioned, also making sure that it's not just the primary text. Am I citing scholars of color, right? Are they making it onto the syllabus? So I'm authorizing voices of color as um, scholars who are important to these conversations. Um, Am I citing emerging scholars? So it's not just the voices that we've been hearing for 15, 20 years, right? But also people who are newly publishing on work. And I think that's really important because it's going to help our students be part of a very current um, conversation. And it's practicing the ethics uh, that I'm trying to model in the book in the classroom as well. And then hopefully students can take that to their future classrooms if they're going to be teachers or whatever the case may be. But then they can value those voices, too.
1: So now that this book is out in the world, what are you turning your attention to? I know you're a department chair. I know there's a heavy administrative <laughs> load that comes with that. But do you have another scholarly project you're hoping to take up? Do you have a course that's in development that you're excited about? Or a hobby outside of academia that you're you're eager to turn your attention to?
0: Academics have hobbies? I would I didn't doubt, you know. I Rumor feel...
1: has it. Rumor has it. I I haven't uh, confirmed yet though.
0: So um I do. I have, I have a number of projects going right now. I have uh, two edited collections that have been submitted. So um, they're out in the universe and hopefully they will be happily received Shakespeare, uh, race and pop culture. And then, um, Shakespeare and the staging of exile. Uh, But when it comes to, and and it's been really fun because it's uh, it's one of the things that if you're in in an administrative position, I would, not that you ask, but I give a tip to those out there, right? Find ways to collaborate, right? Because you're having, not only do I think it's wonderful to collaborate and I'm glad that our field is moving in ways that allow more collaboration um, because it helps you carry the load, um, but it also extends your community, which I think is great. Um, But I also have two projects that I am, working on. I have articles that are forthcoming uh, in Comparative Drama and in Shakespeare Bulletin that are each pieces of these distinctive new projects. Um, and one is looking at Shakespeare, adapted Shakespeare on the stage post-2020. So kind of an extension of the second half of the book. Um, you know, the first half of the book was is really disturbing, right, to think about like all the ways that anti-Blackness um, continues to be perpetuated. And so I wanted to really highlight the work of creatives of color um, who are adapting, appropriating uh, Shakespeare post-2020 in ways that I think can help us understand what liberation can look like on a Shakespearean stage, right? And so what does that even mean, liberation? Like what does anti-racism, anti-sexism, right? Anti, like anything that's like critiquing misogyny, that's critiquing all this anti-LGBTQ discussion that's happening now, the anti-trans, like what does drama um, critiquing all that look like? What are the strategies for doing so, right? So instead of staying with, you know the kind of oh this is horrible and like look at this like bad adaptation and i think it's important critique has its place but also what uh, elevating voices especially voices of color who are trying to do better um and trying to do more on the stage and so i'm going to focus again on the uh, u.s stage um uh, 2020 and beyond uh and then and, and and but i but i'm in the early stages so i reserve the right to, to change to change those uh, parameters for the dates Um, And then I'm also working on a different project that is looking more at some of these kind of pop cultural moments. And I'm trying to decide whether it will be just television, which is where I started, um, or television and film. And thinking about these throwaway moments, these kind of citations of Shakespeare, kind of like in serial words like Shakespeare. Shakespeare absolutely doesn't have to be here, so why is Shakespeare here, right, and um, thinking, because it's all over, I, I mentioned Fresh Off the Boat, there's a Shakespeare episode in Fresh Off the Boat, where they mentioned the, the student's going to go, uh, the young man is going to go watch Romeo and Juliet, but he wants to see Space Jam in se- instead, there, like, there's references to Shakespeare all over uh, the West Wing, for instance, I was just watching The Diplomat, and there's, like, this Macbeth reference for literally, I'm like, why is it here, why are they talking about Macbeth, and so I want to think about the connective tissue that the this work is doing right when you're citing Shakespeare in these random moments where again Shakespeare has been invited here because absolutely doesn't have to be here these aren't adaptations um what what work when it comes to race when it comes to gender when it comes to sexuality um are these moments doing who is saying these Shakespeare lines what is the point of them right who recognizes them and doesn't recognize them um because this creates a kind of connective tissue where Shakespeare then becomes associated with all these other ideas of like who is the great man or right what is an appropriate you know what what do diplomats do and know um and so i want to be thinking about that and so that project is interesting because i'm hoping like Shakespeare's a through line but maybe a little less central right it's more just like where does shakespeare take us um and what are the kind of ideas about identity that shakespeare is being used to prop up right and to to support uh today so those are the two projects i'm thinking about but i'm still at the early stages of both so we'll see which one which one takes uh you know the most time in the schedule in the next and the next year but right now I'm kind of exploring both at the same
1: time so the illusions article is coming out in Shakespeare bulletin you said
0: so the the one um i write on the the one thinking through drama and is coming out in shakespeare bulletin and then the pop culture piece was inspired by some work that i did for an essay that's coming out in uh comparative drama on shakespearean edu- edutainment um and that kind of inspired me like oh okay there's these other elements um out there and so i'm kind of thinking through some of some of that so it'll it's and and we'll see which one which which one kind of gets the most momentum in the next year, but both are going to happen. Not the next year, both are going to happen in the next, you know, years. Uh, But but we'll see which one the 2023-2024 school year uh, is kindest to.
1: Excellent. We'll keep our eyes out for both of those projects. Uh, Thank you for coming on the podcast, Vanessa.
0: Thank you so much for having me, John. It's been such a pleasure.